0: This morning was a very interesting morning, and I think the afternoon will be equally interesting. We'll start off with Dr. Overton, Thomas Overton, from the University of Alabama, who's going to discuss a very hot topic in HIV pathogenesis and disease, and that is the microbiome. His title is, Microbes in the Middle, Understanding the Human Microbiome and Interaction with HIV. I think
1: that's fair. Keyboard and pointer. Okay, good morning or good afternoon now. Thanks to Dr. Fair and to Dr. Volvering for inviting me to participate. It's really kind of fun to come talk about the microbiome, which is something that I've started working on. I guess just as a show of hands, I want to know um, how many people in the audience are human? (laughs) Okay, so um, hopefully this will be a little bit fun. I mean, we're talking about poop right after lunch. I mean, (laughs) what could be more fun? So, you know, uh, humans are complex organisms. Um, and as we as organisms become more complex, um, suspend your disbelief for this, but it becomes more and more challenging to acquire the nutrients that we need. So, a single-celled organism, a bacteria, can just absorb nutrients from its environment and interact with its environment. As we move to multicellular organisms, like humans, we need to have a better way to to gain our nutrients. And so, the first one of the earliest things that happened, um, kind of evolutionarily, was the development of of a tube through which um, you know, the organism could interface and the development of specialized cells that could then extract nutrients uh, from this tube. And as soon as 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 kind of the alimentary tract was developed uh, and this digestive tract, uh, micro simpler organisms moved in and developed a symbiotic relationship. And so over, you know, millions of years, there's developed this symbiotic relationship between bacteria, um, you know, single-celled organisms and and us, eukaryotes, uh, multicellular organisms. And such that they're able to extract their nutrients and they actually assist us in a number of the processes um, ongoing. Um, the other thing to think about, if you think about this tube, our GI tract, it's actually outside of our body. So this is probably the most important place that we interface with the outside world is actually outside of our body. And it, it, you probably heard people talk about where the lymph tissue is in the body. The role of the lymph tissue is to surveil the outside world. I mean, that's really the biggest... Uh, thing that it does not, to identify non-self antigens and respond appropriately, whether that's you know to have tolerance or whether to develop an immune response, um, whether to signal the innate immune, immune response. But so when you think about it like that, uh, 70% of our lymph tissue, of our uh, our lymph cells, lymphocytes are in the gut. And that's because that's where we interface more than anywhere else. And so as you think about that, it's really critical, this interaction we have between Microbes, bacteria, our microbiome, uh, and our immune system, and our overall health. And so I think you just have to think about that perspective um, as we go through this. It's actually a very complex uh, interaction. And so when we try to think about what we can do to alter uh, this interface, uh, it, it can be very complicated. And, and simple interventions uh, may not work because of the complexity that we're working with. So these are my disclosures. And these are our learning objectives. And let's start with a question. (laughs) So the human intestinal microbiota accounts for what percentage of all the cells within the human body? Less than 1%, 10%, 30%, 50%, or 90%? Who's gonna be uh, um, John Travolta? Okay, we've got a pretty good response. So well, a few people are coming in. A whole lot. Okay, so we have good disparity. So, so interestingly, um, it's actually a. a a good question. I mean, you would assume that just on mass alone, that there'd be, you know, less than, you know, 50% or less, but it actually turns out that there are 90, there are, you know, there are like a hundred trillion bacterial cells in our gut, in our um, GI lumen. So 90% of the cells are actually non self bacterial cells. And and so when you think about that, you you can understand why um, it's very important that this complex interaction is ongoing. A second question that I'll ask real quickly is, HIV infection is characterized by a change in the normal intestinal bacterial constituents. True or false?
0: Now this car is automatic.
1: Oh, yeah. it's white lightning.
0: It's hydromatic. Why it's a breeze lightning? I listened to
1: this song with my children, and I didn't realize there was um, <laughs> language that is a little bit uh, risque. <laughs> Okay, great. So um, you guys did pretty well, particularly with the second question. So we'll just go and switch and do an evaluation. We'll talk about, um, you know, the U.S. and different cities. So who can, who can identify these cities? What's this city? All right. How about this city? And this city? So you're going to say Birmingham, aren't you? (laughs) So this is actually Nashville. But you you can know that because here's the L&C building and here's the Bat building. People might be familiar with those. Anyway, I think we all recognize these type of phenotypes when we look at cities. We know we can identify these cities. But what we don't know is what's going on down at this level, right down here low in the streets, you know? It may be very similar across these cities. Some things may be very different. And so when we're thinking about our microbiome, we have to think about very similar. We get these same type of phenotypes. So the the microbiome, the gut microbiome has four main phyla of bacteria, bacteroides, uh, uh, firmicutes, proteobacteria, and uh, actinobacteria. And really two of them dominate, these bacteroides and firmicutes. Now I'm gonna come back to this, uh, this example later on, but what you can see is here are the bacteroides, and in this group of individuals, uh, there's fewer bacteroides, whereas in this, there are more. In this this group, there's more uh, firmicutes, this, there are less, and then also you see the emergence in these of proteobacteria. So this is actually the disease state where you see a shift from a predominance of firmicutes to more uh, bacteroides, as well as the proteobacteria that are actually more pathogenic and can cause disease. All right, so let's just take a step back and talk about what is the, the gut microbiome. So this is a large, stable community of bacteria, over a hundred trillion microbial cells, uh, over a thousand different species. Each of us have a distinct uh, microbial community in, in different areas of our body. And the mouth is different um, than the gut, uh, it's different than the vagina, it's different than the skin. They're very distinct uh, microbiomes. These have very important uh, roles to play in terms of uh, nutrient metabolism, barrier function and, and immunity. All three of those things are critical of the gut microbiome, but they're impacted by a number of things, and I think one of the big challenges that we face is that a lot of behavioral and diet factors have an impact on the microbiome, and, and we're failing in many of our studies to take account of those. The microbiome evolves uh, during our age when we're born. There's a, a significant amount of variability, and it really depends on what you come in contact when you're born. Um, by age three, there's a very st- uh, stable, diverse microbiome that is, is stable throughout much of life uh, unless there are situations like disease or other things that may uh, alter that. Pregnancy, for instance, we see marked increase in diversity during pregnancy. And then at old age, we see a shift um, to uh, a less diverse population with a greater representation of these bacteroidetes uh, species, pathogenic bac- uh, bacteria. And when we think about that, similar things happen in a number of different diseases of chronic inflammation and immunosenescence. We see this kind of uh, dysbiotic state uh, that has a lower amount of diversity. So I'm going to use these terms over uh, again later to talk about uh, the diversity of your your gut microbiome is very critical to be able to have a breadth uh, of, of metabolic processes um, that are symbiotic and they can go on. As people age and the microbiome degenerates, there's a state of dysbiosis, and that can lead to chronic inflammation. Um, inflammatory bowel disease is probably the biggest example of dysbiosis. So uh, inflammatory bowel disease is, is on the increase since about the, uh, the first half of the 20th century. And a lot of people relate this to the increase of the Western lifestyle and the Western diet. So increase in fats, uh, increase in sugars in our diet has led to a dysbiotic state and probably increased the risk of inflammatory bowel disease. So three big things happen in inflammatory bowel disease that we know are driving the pathogenesis. How, which, which is the causative agent is one thing that, that we're still trying to understand. Obviously, there are underlying, uh, underlying genetics to it. But one of the first things that happens is people go from a um, kind of what we would Call a healthy microbiome to a dysbiotic state. And so you can see even in the healthy state, we have many pathogenic bacteria, uh, but they don't make up the, ma- the majority. So you see in, in inflammatory bowel disease, you see this representation of a more um, a pathogenic bacteria. One of the things they do is they break down, they, they secrete products um, that, that break down the mucus layer. So the mucus layer here is very critical to keeping uh, the luminal contents in the gut and not to cross over. The other thing that happens with the shift to pathogenic bacteria is there's uh, the bacteria fail that are, um, that take over are not making a a key nutrient, uh, short chain fatty acids. Short chain fatty acids are products of uh, uh, undigestible fiber and the bacteria in our colon break those down to make short chain fatty acids like butyrate, acetate, propionate. These are the critical um, nutrients for our enterocytes. Without those... The enterocytes uh, uh, fail to make tight junctions, and the bacteria that are able to cross now through this barrier uh, easily translocate across the gut wall into this space and cause inflammation. This inflammation is not just local, but also induces systemic inflammation and many of the diseases that we see that are associated with aging. So we can think about this as a triumvirate of badness, and all three of these things are interrelated, and we're still trying to understand which of these is, is the the, the chicken and which is the egg. Microbial dysbiosis, the loss of barrier function, and then this immune dysfunction, and ongoing uh, local and systemic inflammation. Now you may say, why do we even need to talk about this in HIV, right? So this is, this is my clinic in Birmingham, and we're very very proud of our data. Over the last decade, what have we seen? We've seen the, the, we're identifying people earlier. 213 was the median cell count 10 years ago, now 353. 40% of people that are coming in now have a, have a CD4 count greater than 500, and 92% of our, of our patients have a viral load less than 200, right? So, you know, when we think about this, we can say, you know, mission accomplished. This is, this is the success that we wanted. But at the same time, when we look at our very clinic, what are we seeing? An expansion of comorbidities that we traditionally associated with aging. And the ones that we're seeing are dyslipidemia, hypertension, diabetes, kidney disease, and coronary artery disease at the greatest numbers. And so this is, I think many people are seeing this. Our patients, as they're living longer, are actually doing well with their HIV disease, the point we call their HIV boring, but then we're seeing all of these comorbidities. And many of these comorbidities seem to be related back to this, uh, this inflammation, systemic inflammation that we talk about. And so I think many people are used to seeing a model like this in HIV, where you have many different things ongoing, even in the setting of treated HIV, that can contribute to to inflammation, and then we see these excess uh, uh, comorbidities or premature aging. And I think one of the things to recognize is that the dysbiosis and the alterations in the gut are probably driving some of these significantly. And three that I think that directly we know they do is number one, uh, um, increased metabolic syndrome and obesity that we see in our patients, Uh, hepatic steatosis and inflammation. All the products of microbial translocation go to the liver first through the portal portal system and and cause liver inflammation and steatosis. And then microbial translocation obviously is directly related to this this dysbiotic state and, and this alteration in the gut function. So all of these things contribute to inflammation, both locally and systemically, and lead to comorbidities and aging. So if we think about it, what's happening with the guts of HIV? So I work with a a, a translational scientist, Dr. Zdenakel, who is very interested in innate immunity. And so he's got this model that we're working on uh, in our patients to try to understand this process. Uh, One of the things that happens whenever we get an acute GI illness is we have a, a, a normal host response. So if you have a breakdown in your gut barrier, like right here, The bacteria cross, they signal and activate your innate immune system, neutrophils. They degranulate, they form nets to bind up all of these. Um, They signal monocytes, inflammatory monocytes come to activate these neutrophils to really prevent uh, the excursion of these cells beyond this local area. Once all the bacteria are cleared, then there's a resolution of infection. Um, Some of the innate immune cells, the um, uh, lymphocytes specifically CD17 and CD22, uh, CD4 lymphocytes, um, heal the the mucosa, as well as they alter the response. The monocytes are now switched to an anti-inflammatory phenotype that causes the the neutrophils uh, to uh, autophagocytize and uh, efferocytose, and therefore clear the infection, and we have resolution. In the setting of HIV, where we've killed off these very uh, CD4 cells that are critical From a regulatory perspective, what you're left with is this chronic dysbiotic state and and crossing over bacterial products and its ongoing stimulation and activation of the innate immune system without this regulatory uh, component. And so we're left with this local uh, leaky gut syndrome that contributes to both local inflammation and then systemic inflammation. So a number of groups have looked at this. Peter Hunt has really done a nice job of looking at people who are, are treated with HIV and then seeing um, what, are the, what are the underlying causes or, or relationships uh, to inflammation and mortality. This is um, his cohort from Uganda, where they looked at patients who were uh, undetectable and looked at, ca- at, at predictors of mortality. And what they saw were there are a number of biomarkers that were really important. Some of these I think we're very familiar with. IL-6 is a non-specific inflammatory biomarker. D-dimer is a a coagulation uh, biomarker. Uh, Soluble CD14 and K to T ratio are two biomarkers that are really critical to to the gut health. So when we think about soluble CD14, this comes primarily from activated monocytes, the scavenger molecule that picks up um, uh, microbial products like LPS. Um, The K to T ratio is a little bit more complicated, and this is based on tryptophan metabolism. Tryptophan is an amino acid that we have to get from our dietary sources. And it's really critical for a number of different processes. And it is a very uh, complex metabolism involved in many things. But one of the things it's very involved in is gut health, uh, locally uh, generating serotonin, which promotes um, uh, um, the enterocyte function. And so uh, when we see a shift, when tryptophan is broken down, to kynurenine, which happens when you have excess innate immune activation, as well as a dysbiotic state, some of the pathogenic bacteria produce this uh, uh, enzyme called enzyme called IDO. Uh, you see a shift to uh, a lower uh, tryptophan uh, levels and higher kynurenine levels, uh, and that is associated with excess inflammation. I have a whole slide for you on that, and this still is an oversimplification, but I think that what we can Simplify it down to is um, with a dysbiotic state and excess microbial translocation, there's excess activation of this indolamine 2,3-dioxygenase, uh, uh, IDO enzyme. And, and what this does is deplete tryptophan levels and, and it increases local immune activation and inflammation, microbial translocation, and then systemic infl- inflammation beyond that. So I think this is an important thing that we have to consider: is the mechanisms that are driving. Um, Uh, systemic inflammation and its complications. So I don't think we can talk about our gut microbiome without thinking about diet. And I think this has been a limitation of many of the studies that we've done. Um, uh, We've done a study at at our site where we actually surveilled people for their diet, and we've also done the uh, collected stool for their microbiome analysis. And I was hoping we'd have the microbiome analysis uh, ready, but it's it's still kind of in the hopper. But so uh, what I do want to share with you is the dietary survey that we've done of our patients, and a striking thing from this cohort is 38% of our patients are obese, but many of them are failing to meet kind of basic nutritional recommendations. While they get adequate caloric intake, only 42% uh, uh, have adequate protein, only 10% have adequate dietary fiber, and so this is a really critical thing. I mentioned earlier these short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids are breakdown products from, this, uh, from fiber by the, by the constituents of your microbiome, Without adequate fiber, you don't have these short-chain fatty acids, and t- health uh, is much worse. Another thing that we noted, oh, and then food security in 55% of our patients, which I'm not going to get into here, but this may be a big driver of some of the disease that we see. In many of the patients, there was a, a paucity of tryptophan-containing foods, which are poultry, seafood, legumes, nuts, cheese, and dairy. There are others as well. But but a lack of this essential amino acid that is critical to gut health uh, and immunity. So you may have heard some people talk about the CENIX cohort. The CENIX cohort is a linked cohort of uh, many of, of eight different clinics across the United States that have a CEFAR, and they aggregate their data to evaluate it. One of the things that we did is we looked at, at uh, physical inactivity and its link to comorbidity. The first thing that we noted is in this overall cohort, you see 35% of obesity. Obesity correlated very much with physical inactivity. Similarly, both physical inactivity and obesity correlated with these diseases of aging that were associated with. So hypertension, multimorbidity, cardiovascular disease. And you can see, I think what we're seeing in many of our patients you know, is, is um, uh, just inadequate uh, physical activity. Uh, as well as poor diet. So you know maybe one thing that we need to do is just encourage them to get physical with Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> but obesity, I think, is underappreciated in terms of, of a disease that is a dysbiotic state. So there's a, a growing literature that recognizes um, that probably what, what's happening is people are, are altering their diet to a diet that's high in fat, high in sugars, low in fiber. And as a consequence, we see a dysbiotic state, increased gut permeability an alteration in the microbiome from bacteria that produce uh, short-chain fatty acids to these pathogenic bacteria. And and this has many consequences on a number of different uh, organs that I think you're aware of. It also has a a profound impact on kind of the gut-brain signaling, which is something that we're really starting to understand now. The microbiome may actually impact uh, mental health, cognition, and and mood. Okay, I got to make sure you're awake, so we'll have another question. So all of the following conditions have been associated with dysbiosis except Clostridium difficile colitis, HIV infection, ulcerative colitis, exercise, older age, and antibiotic use, or antibiotic use. Which one has not been associated with dysbiosis? (laughs) Got to shape up. Come on, people. (laughs) I think we're good, you although I like the song. Perfect timing. Do I? Okay, good, absolutely. So actually, uh, you know, exercise is associated, I'm not talking a whole lot about exercise today, but exercise is associated with a greater diversity and a decreased microbial translocation uh, in studies that has been looked at. Um, so you know, there are benefits of exercise beyond you know, just making you look good for the beach this summer. Okay, so what are the consequences of microbial dysbiosis? And I think when we think about this, there are three buckets that um, uh, the microbiome are contributing to overall, so immunity, metabolism, and the gut brain axis. And, and I think um, people don't these are the areas that we need to be looking at for the future. I think one of the things that we've done, and I, the data that I'm going to show you really just looks at populations, but what we need to understand are what are the metabolic pathways that are upregulated, downregulated in HIV in a dysbiotic state with certain diets? These are the things that are going to be critical for us to actually be able to intervene on this level. What we do know is that many different things can cause a dysbiotic state. So you can see a number of diseases here that are associated with the dysbiotic state. Uh, and the question is, can we do things to alter the microbiome that will return us to health. And so a number of things that are of interest that are relatively simple interventions, diet, prebiotics, probiotics, uh, uh, maybe a more extreme, uh, when we talk about this, is fecal transplant. Um, I'm sure many people know about fecal transplant for Clostridium difficile. There's interest in doing fecal transplant uh, for other disease states um, as well. The other thing that we we know is that the dysbiosis is really an imbalance uh, of the normal normal flora. And so this has a disruption in the host microorganism homeostasis. And then we see the complications, both locally in the gut and then systemically as well. And one thing to recognize is HIV itself causes a dysbiotic state and these consequences. So now I wanna share just some data with you about HIV and dysbiosis. So I showed you um, this earlier. This is uh, data from Carol Wilson at the University of Colorado. And her group has really been on the forefront of understanding the microbiome in the setting of HIV. And I think what you can, you can appreciate when you compare these uninfected subjects with these HIV-infected subjects is a different phenotype, right? There's different amounts of these different bacteria. And in fact, just eyeballing it, you can see that there's an increase in these bacteroidetes uh, species uh, and a decrease in these firmicute species in the HIV population. So a shift to a more pathogenic uh, makeup. And when we look at specific species, you can see just that. In the HIV, there's an enrichment of Prevotella, which has been associated with colon cancer and other disease states, and a decrease in Bacteroides. Uh, overall, the Bacteroides, are, uh, um, Bacteroides populations are actually very helpful, and, and many of them are, are butyrate-producing bacteria. Um, I, I showed you this study because one of the problems that we have had until just more recently is that much of the data in HIV has been a single snapshot. And, and I think that makes it uh, very difficult. You really need longitudinal data to understand the microbiome. So here, uh, what this group did is they took 76 men who have sex with men, 44 of whom were HIV infected and 32 were HIV negative, and they collected at two time points to see the stability of um, of the microbiome. And what they actually saw was in both groups there was very good stability in the microbiome with one exception. People who had a decline in their CD4 count had a marked uh, uh, increase in dysbiosis or a decrease in diversity in terms of their cell, in terms of their microbiome. HIV overall was associated with a decreased diversity and specifically fewer firmicutes and a higher relative ab- abundance of fusobacteria, once again, a pathogenic uh, bacteria group. And these are just those data, and some of the way that we look at this data, you may hear some of these terms. Uh, OTU, Operational Taxonomic Unit. So these are the, the, just a, a specific bacteria that's, that's identified, and what you can see clearly is the HIV negative has more, more of these, more OTUs. You can think of these as species, although not all of them are able to be identified down to species than the HIV infected. And that's at both of the um, time points. The Shannon index is a a marker of alpha diversity, how diverse, how rich the population is. And you can get a sense once again, in the HIV, lower diversity. And then you see these specific groups, the firmicutes are a whole phyla, or fusobacteria is a genus. But once again, you can see less of the healthy uh, uh, firmicutes that are producing butyrate and short chain fatty acids, uh, and more of the fusobacteria, uh, which are pathogenic and tend to lead more to bacterial um, microbial translocation. So I've spent a lot of time uh, kind of trying to convince you that butyrate is important, but uh, what is the data on butyrate and these short-chain fatty acids in, in HIV? And so Kara Wilson's group once again took a look at a small number of individuals, 14 HIV negative and 18 H- HIV infected individuals. And now all these people are biremic, so that is a complication that we have to understand. And just look to see what was the prevalence of butyrate-producing bacteria. And what you can get a sense, once again here, when you look at the colonic mucosa, there was a decrease in butyrate-producing bacteria um, in the HIV-infected individuals. Uh, Furthermore, when they supplemented uh, with butyrate, there was actually a decrease in T cell activation and a decrease in interferon gamma production. So by supplementing uh, a short chain fatty acid, you actually saw a reduction in in inflammation uh, and immune activation. So really suggesting that uh, dietary uh, impact is going to be very profound in terms of not just HIV disease in general, but systemic inflammation. Now there there are some data that are confounding, and I think we have to take this into account. And so this is some data that was presented last year at CROI, and we really need to to understand this. So this is data where they looked at uh, men who have sex with men, both HIV uh, positive and negative, but they also had uh, women as well as um, HIV infected men um, who, who were not MSM. And what you can, first thing they did is they just looked at the population. So you see here, this is a principal coordinates analysis. Um, and so basically what they're doing is they're seeing how the, how the, the microbiome cluster. And what you can get a sense here, uh, the red, the HIV negative, appear to cluster primarily here, and the blue, the HIV positive, appear to cluster primarily over here. Now, obviously, there's some crossover, but I think you can get a sense there seems to be more blue here and more red here. More of the HIV have, or have this predominance of Prevotella. One of the things they looked at, when then they looked at uh, behavioral factors and, and um, uh, sex, what you can see is actually the HIV negative were pri- primarily women, uh, and then the non-MSM seemed to cluster over here, and the the MSM, so uh, anal intercourse, uh, seemed to be more closely uh, co-located. And so the question becomes, how much of this is related to HIV and how much of this has been is related to, Uh, to anal intercourse, and I think that's a big question that we have and we're trying to understand. A number of groups have now confirmed this. Uh, And so, you know, once again, I think that behavioral, diet, uh, and other factors may be playing a big role. One of the things that we know, this group of Prevotella that they've identified is actually a highly pathogenic uh, uh, strain uh, that are associated with microbial translocation and systemic (laughs) inflammation. So we have a number of factors that need further understanding. So we need to know the interaction between HIV, the microbiome and chronic diseases. Um, we need to, <laughs> everybody gets peeps for Easter, don't they? <laughs> Watch out for the chocolate peeps.
0: <laughs>
1: we need to understand um, the behavioral factors that are playing a role, tobacco and alcohol or other things that we haven't uh, really talked about. And then potential inter- interventions, antibiotics, probiotics, prebiotics, dietary supplements, anti-inflammatory agents. All of these things need to be evaluated to see what their role is. I can't really talk enough about how important fiber is in our diet and how the Western diet has really uh, decreased how much fiber there is. A high fat diet without fiber induces dysbiotic, decrease in enterocyte health, increases gut permeability, and decreases the immune function in the gut. There's subsequent microbial translocation with both local and systemic inflammation. And and so what you can see is when you supplement a, a, even a high-fat diet enriched with fermentable fiber, all of a sudden you get a more diverse uh, microbiome. Uh, uh, you get the development of more of these regulatory uh, lymphoid cells, um, and and therefore they block microbial encroachment, uh, microbial translocation, and a lot of the local and systemic inflammation. So with a even a modest intervention like dietary supplementation with fiber may have big implications. So a question becomes, can we restore the healthy gut? So we have a healthy gut with HIV infection. We kill uh, a lot of the the T cells that are critical for regulation. You get this barrier breakdown. Uh, Antiretroviral therapy improves this some, but incompletely. And so we're left with this leaky gut uh, syndrome where you still have microbial uh, products crossing across. And the question is, Can we restore this to to a healthy state? Are there interventions that we can do that will have benefit? And I think that's one of the things that we're trying to identify. So far, uh, some interventions have been modest. Many have been negative. So uh, we're really looking to to study these. One study that we have ongoing right now, and I'm fortunate to be the co-chair of this, is a study where we took 90 individuals on antiretroviral therapy, doing well. We randomized them to a probiotic or not. I'm hoping that this summer we'll have these data because I I think this will be very informative to tell us uh, if uh, probiotic supplementation can improve gut health in the setting of, of controlled HIV infection. So just in conclusion, we know that HIV causes a profound immune deficiency, uh, depletion of CD4 cells, even after someone's treated, they're left with CD4 depletion, particularly in the gut. Um, this uh, leads to this dysbiotic state and leaky gut syndrome, a- a microbial translocation and systemic inflammation. So are there things that we can do that we can, uh, uh, we can intervene upon that can impact this and, and limit the development of, of these complications that we're seeing? Uh, obesity, NASH, and NAFLD, um, cardiovascular disease, dyslipidemia, and so I think that that's a big area that we'll continue to explore. And so hopefully next time I come back, I'll, I'll have, I'll have some exciting results for you guys. So anyway, I'm I'm going to stop here and i to take any any questions you have.
0: Start are that, what do the studies of gut lymphocytes on effective heart show about recovery of the lymph- lymphatic tissue in the
1: in the gut? So um, as everybody knows, with with HIV therapy, you get a big boost in terms of your uh, peripheral CD4 cells, but there is is some increase, but not nearly uh, the same degree in the gut. In fact, in the gut, um, there's still a profound depletion of CD4 cells, and particularly these um, TH17 and uh, 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 TH22 CD4 cells that are really critical for uh, uh, regulatory processes in the gut. So even Though you see this bump systemically, it doesn't, it's not happening in the gut. Now, it does appear that if you can get treat, people treated very early, you preserve a greater number of those in the gut.
0: Is there a specific probiotic that's more useful than others?
1: I think the biggest challenge is many of the probiotics on the market are uh, have too few uh, organisms to survive the stomach and actually make a meaningful difference. Um, uh there are some that are better than others uh I, I in full disclosure I'll tell you we've been working with um one that's called v s l number four and and uh i'm sorry v s l number three and it, it it contains nine billion colony forming units per uh dose that we give, and so you know that seems like a lot but um these bacteria have got to survive through the gut. Uh, But I think that's a big question. So there have been a number of different ones studied. I think that the ones people are interested in are are ones that have bacteria that are short-chain fatty acid producers. Those seem to be key. Uh, Often they'll have lactobacillus or or bifidobacter as key components to um, uh, to their uh, makeup.
0: So is there a specific fiber that you can supplement that's more effective than others?
1: Well, a lot of people are interested in this uh, uh, kind of what we call a prebiotic called inulin. So you may have heard of inulin. Uh, so inulin is a, uh, a non-digestible fiber that uh, is broken down very effectively by the bacteria. I think increasing uh, you know, your fiber in general can be helpful. I mean, I think people underappreciate uh, the limited amount of fiber we actually get in our current diet. So I, I you know if you put wheat germ or encourage your patients to eat uh, whole grains that actually can make a difference.
0: What about statins? What effect do they have on the-
1: so, so That's a robot? great question. And uh, I think there's a bidirectional effect of statins that we haven't fully appreciated. Um, statins may actually uh, uh, improve uh, uh, the decreased inflammation in the gut and thereby uh, kind of work indirectly to, uh, uh, to reduce microbial translocation. Uh, the bacteria in the gut are probably very involved in some of the metabolism of statins. And so there may be certain... Uh, uh, Entera uh, sites or um, uh, uh, bacteria microbiome that break down statins more effectively, and therefore people don't see the same lipid lowering effect. And I think that's something that we still have to to explore.
0: A lot of there must be fifteen questions about which probiotic to give. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess what about uh, supplementing with butyrate and tryptophan? Is that
1: yeah I, you know I think it's it's sort of challenging to uh, to supplement effectively with butyrate. The amount of butyrate that you actually have to supplement is very high and it induces a lot of um, flatulence and um, loose stool so I think supplementing with butyrate itself may not be preferred. I think increasing uh, uh, um, fermentable fibers that that can be uh, broken down into these short chain fatty acids is probably a better a better route
0: and Is there a clinical phenotype that identifies people with dysbiosis?
1: In other words. No, I think that's a great question. So one of the things that we're uh, trying to understand, so I think everybody knows about irritable bowel syndrome and people that have these uh, these complaints. What has been recognized is people with irritable bowel syndrome who have these complaints of abdominal pain uh, often have a dysbiotic state. I think that, they, that quite often uh, symptoms that our patients may be having may be related to the dysbiotic state. And I'll give you just one example. I think we all know very well is with our advanced uh, HIV patients, uh, you know, who get um, uh, you know candidal overgrowth not just of the oropharynx but also the the colon and and they'll have severe GI complaints and you treat their oral thrush with uh, fluconazole and their their GI symptoms get get better as well, and it's probably because what they've done is they've had a dysbiotic state with excess candidal overgrowth um, so so yes, I think that can uh, there are definitely some phenotypes that we can we can look at That's it okay, yeah. thank you guys, and I'm happy to to take other questions as well. Microphone.